This is a Daily Wildcat production. Listeners. And welcome to a very special mini-episode of Wildcat Crime, the monthly podcast dedicated to taking a closer look at some of the most infamous crimes to occur at the University of Arizona and within the Wildcat community, brought to you by the Daily Wildcat and Camp Student Radio. My name is Vanessa Ontiveros, and I'll be your host. But today, I am joined by a very, very special guest. Lovely listeners, please join me in welcoming investigative crime reporter Billy Jensen. Hello, Billy. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. How are you doing? I'm doing good. So, dedicated true crime fans, and let me just take a minute to shout out the Tucson Murderinos, a.k.a. Old Pueblo Murderinos, because they have been massively supportive of this show. You might recognize my guest from his voice alone, but let me give a little background for the more casual listener, a.k.a. my mom. As I said, Billy Jensen is an investigative true crime reporter who specializes in using social media to discover new leads in unsolved murder cases. He's written for Rolling Stone, Los Angeles Magazine, The New York Times. He was a supervising producer and investigator for Crime Watch Daily. And he currently hosts his own podcast, along with Alexis Linkletter and Jack Vanek, called The First Degree, and has a new podcast coming to Stitcher Podcast Network with noted detective and investigator on the Golden State Killer case, Paul Holes, called Jensen and Holes Murder Squad. He's also been on the My Favorite Murder podcast a couple of times, but the reason he's in Tucson this weekend is because he helped finish Michelle McNamara's truly incredible book on the Golden State Killer, I'll Be Gone in the Dark, which he will be speaking about at this weekend's Tucson Festival of Books. Did I miss anything, Billy? You did not. Well, actually, you did miss one thing. Mm-hmm. Uh... I am going to, well, my book is just available for pre-order. It's called Chase Darkness with Me. It's only on Audible, Audible Originals. So if you've got those Audible credits, go spend it on right now because pre-orders are really important. And it tells the story, a lot of what I'm going to be speaking today, of you know how I got my start, how I wrote stories for 17 years with no endings. Um, I, I was friends with Michelle. Michelle died. I got fed up, and I was like, i got to be able to solve some of these murders myself. So I start solving them with social media, I come up with this, this plan, this technique. And then I also have to finish Michelle's book because Michelle passed. And, um, so it's, a, it's a combination. There are serial killer stories in there. There are, um, there's Star Wars references in there. There's Murderino references in there. Karen Kilgariff wrote the forward and, um, and, and speaks in it, which is good because it's an audio book. So, um, I think you guys are really going to like it and it will definitely for all the Murderinos out there, uh, the Tucson Murderinos, it will fill in that gap when you guys are like, oh, there's no mini-toad and there's no regular episode. Like, what am I going to do over the weekend? This is what you do. You buy the book and you listen to it. That was <laughs> a truly incredible plug. So I actually want to start off by talking about um, Michelle's book, yeah. which um, I go into your book a little bit later. Um, so if anyone listening has not read I'll Be Gone in the Dark, do yourself a favor and read it. You've probably heard me talk about it already. But if you like this podcast know that this book is probably the best book I've ever read, and Michelle and her writing style were huge inspirations. But Michelle McNamara was working on this book for years, and she was very, very focused um, on writing about the Golden State Killer, who we now know to be Joseph James D'Angelo, 
but at the time was unknown, and his series of murders and rapes were considered unsolved. And she was writing this book, and unfortunately died before completing it. So Billy, what was the process of kind of taking Michelle's notes and arranging them into a proper book like for you, Paul Haynes, Michelle's research partner, and Patton Oswald, Michelle's husband? So first, you know, and I had told Patton, you know, when she passed away, I had written a memorial to her because everybody was referring to her as Patton Oswald's wife. I was like, no, she was a true crime writer. That's what she was. So I wrote, I wrote a blog post about it and tweeted it out and Patton retweeted it and that sort of had everybody coming to me, asking me questions about her and everything. And in the, in the post, I said, I'll do, you know, I will finish this book. I talked to Patton that weekend and I said, I'll do anything I can to finish the book. And, you know, we got her hard drive, you know, 6,000 documents. And on top of the 17 banker boxes of, of documents and police files. And I specifically did not read anything about the case during that time, except for what she had in her files. I didn't want anything to enter my mind because she had enough anyway. She had more than anybody literally in the country, including the, the police, because she was working between the jurisdictions. So, uh, you know, we were able to go in, I would go in and like, see, she had chapters. So she wrote it in chunks. She didn't write it linearly. So she would write it in chapters. So it was a chapter called Rare Markers. And there was this other chapter and, and just kind of putting them together and thinking, all right, well, I've got some of these fully formed chapters. There's going to be holes that we're not going to be able to fill because she's such a great writer. I could never be as good a writer as her. It would look dumb for us to try and write the way she was. So I said, all right, well, what are we going to do? So I, I just kind of broke it out into, let's break this into three parts. The first part is going to be in the past. And she she really wrote about the past and writing about the past in terms of the murders first. And then we get into the rapes. So you had these murders that were happening later in Southern California. You had these sexual assaults that were happening earlier in Northern California. And then part one is going to end with the oh shit moment of, oh my God, this is the same guy. We've been looking for the same guy. So then it ends on part one. Part two starts with her, uh, with Paul Holes, hashtag Hoffer Holes, and uh, going into... Um, I wasn't going to say it, but you can. <laughs> going into the, the investigations and actually walking the crime scenes herself and working with him and everything. And then part three, obviously she passes, and then part three was... All right, I said, what? Let's follow the, to use a Greek mythology reference since we're on a college campus, and that was my major. What strings did she give us to lead us out of this maze that we could find him? And I said that there's two that she thought. There was two things she thought that we were going to get him with, which was geoprofiling, which is the idea that taking all of his crimes, particularly in Sacramento because he had so many of them, and trying to figure out where he might live or work or play based on mapping out those crimes and familial DNA. So Paul took geoprofiling because he's really good at it. I took familial DNA, and uh, we just went from there and, um, you know, put it together. I found that that one chapter, uh, um, the letter to an old man, which ends the book, which was just really incredible, eerie chapter. I actually just, I did some more shooting for the HBO documentary that we're doing. It's an HBO series. Um, on it, and they had me read the entire letter to an old man, which is the last chapter in the book, and it's just so freaking good. And they had me read it out loud, and I was just like, I, I'm glad they had me read it out loud after I recorded my audiobook, because to, to tell you the truth, when I read that, I couldn't write my own stuff for like six months, because every time I would start writing, I'd be like, 
this sucks because it's not as good as hers. She was such a good writer. And that wasn't even the best thing about her. The best thing about her was her ability to get, and I talk about this in, the, in her, tri her tribute to her, her ability to get different police departments and different law enforcement agencies to actually talk to each other. So if you got guys over here that are, have this information, guys over here that have this information, and she's like, all right, guys, I'm going to buy you a steak, I'm going to buy you a beer, let's go. And they did. Mm -hmm. And so you talk about her amazing writing, and this is, this is evident to anyone who's read the book. Um, but did you foresee this book being as successful as it has become? For those who don't know, it ended up being a number one New York Times bestseller. Mm -hmm. HBO, like you said, is producing a miniseries based on it. And just the the human response, the fan response, has been, at least from my perspective, very, very large. And a lot of people, myself included, have said that this book really resonated with them. Mm -hmm. So did you, did you foresee that happening when you guys were putting the book together and getting it out to publish? I think, the, I think we thought the book would definitely resonate because she is she's one of the readers at the end of the day. She's not a cop writing about it. She is a, a true crime fan and she is the true crime demo, demographic, you know, 25 to 55, 54 year old female. That's what she was. She was right in that demo. And that's the key demo for true crime. True crime is 80%, probably even more, uh, female. And, um, I think people were going to see her in the same way that they saw Anne Rule, where, whereas Anne Rule, when she wrote Stranger Beside Me about Ted Bundy and she worked next to Ted Bundy at the suicide hotline and then he was killing people and she she was upset because she didn't really ever figure it out and, and had no inkling of that he was doing these things. But she's sort of, Anne Rule is sort of like the, the witness and people look to her and be like, okay, fine, and then she had a huge career. I think... With Michelle, it was sort of like, all right, well, Michelle's like the citizen detective. Like, if I wanted to take it one step further and try and solve this thing with all these true crime people that are listening to the podcast and watching ID and Oxygen, the, the, she, she would be the person, the aspirational person. So I thought, you know what, on top of the writing, that's what people would really resonate with. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so fast forward a couple months. The book is a huge success. And around at least 2 in the morning, um, Tucson time, on April 21st, 2018, it comes out that the Sacramento Sheriff's Department's office has finally, finally arrested a suspect with a 100% DNA match. So it's looking pretty good. Joseph James D'Angelo. What was it like, um, from your perspective, hearing this news? And specifically, you had mentioned on other podcasts, I think it was My Favorite Murder, that yeah. you expected it to be bittersweet because Michelle was not around to learn about this arrest. and. Right grief because you would immediately need to know more yeah did that end up coming true or yeah i mean well i mean at first it was the sort of euphoria of it because so here was the situation we were in chicago we were all in chicago we were doing a book event so it was myself and paul haynes and pat and we were all in the same hotel i get word about uh, 11 uh, my time, uh, Chicago time, from somebody saying that there's a press conference. That's it. And I'm just like, what the hell's going on? So I contact one of the sisterhood survivors, um, Debbie Domingo, and I said, have you heard anything? She's like, yeah. All I heard was from Anne-Marie, who was Anne-Marie, the D Anne Marie Schubert, the DA in Sacramento. I heard that there's a press conference tomorrow, and he's in custody. And I said, he's in custody? What the hell? So then it was just... 
trying to find out as it was coming in. So then we got the name, and I kind of got deflated when I when I heard the name because we had been searching for this Germanic or English name, and this name was Italian. We we're just like, what? That doesn't sound right. So I was a little skeptical at first, but and I, that's why I didn't tweet it out yet. And I started look going into newspaper archives and doing searches for this name. So I found a story about him being in the Navy. Okay, we always thought he might be in the military. Found a story about him uh, as a cop, like this photo of him. And I see his picture for the first time. And then I find this story about how he was arrested for shoplifting. And I was just like, arrested for shoplifting? That's weird. And then he didn't fight it, and he just like quit the force. So I was like, well, what did he shoplift? And I'm reading it, and it says he shoplifted dog repellent and a hammer. And I went, holy shit, this is the guy. And you can see I got goosebumps now. <laughs> uh, and I said, there's no way. You know, who, who, who does that? Who steals dog repellent? He didn't want anybody to know that he was buying it. And nobody, no cop, a cop can shoot a guy in the face, an unarmed guy in the face, and then the police union will be right there trying to defend him. He just walked away. No, no, no. This is him. And then it started to unravel. And then I was like, I woke up Patton, and and um, then it was just a whirlwind, whirlwind week after that of doing interviews and everything. Yeah. And so, kind of going back a little, what is this process like of trying to find one person in this? It's it's not even a needle in a haystack. It's like a sesame seed in a haystack or something. Sesame seed in a haystack would be fairly easy because it doesn't look like all the other needles in the haystack, though. You know what I mean? That's the problem. The reason why it's a needle in the haystack is because they all look the same. And, um, it should be you know, noted that needle, I grew up in L.A. and I yeah, don't really know yeah. what hay looks like very well. So, yes, it's like smog in a... It's like a smog cloud in, in L.A. You're never going to find it because there's so many of them. Uh, you know, it was... He was not on anyone's radar at all. And when you're dealing with, you know, there's two different, there's two different kind of crime solving type of things that you see on television. One is what America's Most Wanted did, which was fugitives. So when you have a fugitive, you, you have pictures of them and you also know what they're like. You know who their families are and you know, like, John Smith is a bowler and he works as an electrician. You're like, yeah, all right. So then everybody that's watching that's going to be like, wow, I, I, that guy on the Thursday Night League kind of looks like that guy or whatever, you know. This is completely different. You've got leads in that one. When you're looking for information, when you're looking for a person, it's more like looking for a ghost. Um, the thing and the reason why that Michelle was so captivated by this case was that there was so much information about this guy, and they had no idea who he was. And that's what drew her to it, is that there was just so much stuff, you know. And not to mention the fact of how horrifying he was as a predator because he puts all those other guys to shame. I don't want to ever give him props. I hate when people do that. But he was attacking people where they felt most safe, in their home. Where else do you feel most safe? In your home, next to your partner, with a, with a gun in your, in your drawer. And he took over your castle and was king of that castle for five or six hours and terrorized you. You know, Charles Manson, yeah, they did that. Um, but they did it, you know, sort of sloppily. They weren't as methodical as he was. But any, all the, uh, you know, Lover's Lane killers like Zodiac or Son of Sam, you know, they were killing people that were out and they were alone and they were, you know, or with, you know, they were snogging in, in cars. So what he was and what he represented was so fearful and, uh, and 
really captivated that that city. But he really nobody really knew about him though because he had such you hate to say it, but poor branding. You know, his name was East Area Rapist, well, East of where? Original Night Stalker. Or, well, who's the other Night Stalker, you know? <laughs> kind of got overshadowed yeah, there. Yeah, yeah, and it's like, wait, there's two Night Stalkers working at the same time in Southern California? What the hell's wrong with Southern California? <laughs> <laughs> yes, a lot. But, yeah. Wrong. But, uh, you know, so that's why she wanted to rename him, you know, renamed him the Golden State Killer, and it stuck. You know, at first I was like, you're really going to rename him? But it was like, yeah, it stuck and it worked. You know, it definitely worked. And so, as you mentioned earlier, you have also written a book um, called Chase Darkness With Me. Great title, by the way. Thank you. Um, about your career kind of looking into unsolved murders. Um, and it was going to be released on April 11th, but like you said, pre-order is pre-order. available now. Pre-orders are very important in publishing, so please pre-order it now. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so what was the writing process for that book like, um, specifically versus the kind of writing process for I'll Be Gone in the Dark? Well, I'll Be Gone in the Dark was more editing, you know, and it was just little tiny, tiny bits of writing. Um, this was writing. This was coming up with things from scratch. And, um, you know, you start to learn things about yourself and you start to learn patterns. You know, I'm a writer. I was a writer for 20 years. Uh, I hadn't really been... I w- was writing little bits here or there, but I kind of switched to television when I was on Crime Watch, so... Uh, which is a completely different beast and so different in terms of how you deal with with facts and how little you can put in a, in a story compared to what you do as a writer. So with that one, it was me, you know, I come up with this idea uh, halfway, not halfway through the book, but a third of the way through the book, you know, it, it talks about these cases that I was trying to solve and failing. And then I come up with this idea and then I solved my first case. I solved my first, my first murder case. And then I start solving others and uh, I'm doing it, you know, and, um, I'm writing it as, as it's happening. So I'm, I'm, I'm my own research in a sense. And then there were other stories because I get into, I don't know if you, you listen to the Bear Brook podcast. I've heard the trailer. From, from Allenstown. Uh, so I worked that case for a while, Allenstown four. So there's two, really good paragraphs that I'm very happy with about me uh, working that case. And actually, I was I had just gotten back from the woods when I heard that Michelle died. So those killers, Golden State Killer and the killer of the Allenstown Four, were always connected in my mind. And you learn in the book how they're actually connected in, in truth in real life, which is crazy. So uh, there's that. And then there's uh, obviously Golden State Killer stuff. There's the... Um, the murders that I saw, there's the only, one of the first, the first unsolved case I ever did, which is the only murder in New York City on 9-11, and that's actually an unsolved murder, and uh, stuff about me as a, as, you know, a little kid, which is fun, and, <laughs> and there's a lot, there, there, it's the only true crime book you'll see that's going, that has a lot of, like, just strange pop culture references, there's, there's, like, David Bowie, and the Smurfs, and, um, Star Wars and Batman and uh, obviously the Murderinos are in there. Yeah, so it's, uh, it's you know, I try to, you work with such heady material and I like to think that I'm, I'm a fun conversationalist and I have a good sense of humor and it's, it's tough because you can't make jokes when you're doing that, you know. So, but you kind of, it's, a, you know, I try to make it as enjoyable and as casual as possible and not a just the facts man type of book, so, mm-hmm. yeah. 
speaking of pop culture references, I follow you on Twitter, like many dedicated okay. margarinos. And every now and then, something will come up on my feet about, like, 1970s sports. And I'll just be like, yes. who am I following that could possibly be tweeting this? You know what? That 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 Super 70s sports, It's he's, his name is Super 70s sports. And he is um, a, and I sometimes I retweet his stuff and things. And he's very funny. And I actually thank him in the book. I don't know him. I've thanked him in the book because it's like I'm constantly looking at crime and there's another guy called Dinosaur Dracula who does like 1980s toys and he also will buy like like the Gremlin cereal from 1984 and it's like still in the package he's like if you give me $20 on my Patreon I'm going to eat it and it's like yeah then he videotapes him eating it it's like ridiculous and it's so it's it's those two guys just make me laugh so much I actually thank them in the in the in the acknowledgments in the book because yeah no Twitter is Twitter's fun I mean Twitter and and Instagram you know it's so weird how we've moved away from Facebook and we kind of use Facebook now as a is almost like a planning tool a little bit or like stuff with like, you know, it's, it's older people and Facebook's in a real, real problem right now. But you know, the stuff that you see on Instagram and particularly in Instagram, the bookstagrammers, the people that are really into books and, and the little subgroups that you see in Instagram and the murderinos and the, and the crafting murderinos too, and all that great stuff. Yeah. So it was, so last, yeah. So in the, the episode yesterday, we were talking about my book, and Georgia said she she described me as a a goth anime character, and I was like, I want to voice a goth anime character. So now people are like, I'm gonna draw you as a goth anime character. I'm like, please do, that'd be awesome. So it's just like there's so much creativity there, and there's so much fan made art that is being done with the Murderino community. I just think it's such a cool a cool community, and I'm part of some of the the Facebook groups that are there. And that's a, that's another thing that people use for Facebook is, that, is the groups. You know, mm-hmm. nobody's really using it just as a stream anymore. Nobody does that. But you're part of those communities, and, and you see them talking with each other and talking about, you know, helping each other out with different things, whether they're personal problems or professional problems. And it's really a cool community. And when the ladies do their live show, everybody comes out and they're mm-hmm. selling out six thousand seat places. And it's because, you know, you people are just there's such alienation in this world right now. And you're just, all you're doing is you're sitting at home or you're looking at your computer screen. They want to go out and be around other people that think like them. And that's what they're able to do at those, at those live shows. And I think for a lot of fans, especially um, maybe fans who are older, I don't know if I've experienced this as much, but you know, for a long time, it was a thing you didn't talk about. If you, Mm -hmm. if you were interested in this, you didn't talk about it. And now it's so many people finding out that there are so many like-minded people out there and there's, there's truly a group for everything which is the insane part. yeah yeah so you specialize in unsolved cases why 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 unsolved cases because i wanted to help you know and that's the reason why i i actually described the the reason like the sort of the moment that i said i'm not doing this because i was on my way to being a crime reporter and there was a moment that i said no i'm not doing this again this is not a way to it's not good for, it doesn't feed my soul, it doesn't feed the story, it doesn't, it's just, it's rubbernecking, you know. So I couldn't be a crime reporter, so I turned into being an editor. So I could pick my own stories. And I was, I'm good at editing, I'm good at working with writers, I'm good with keeping the trains on time and making sure we got the right art and working with the art director. I like doing all that stuff. So, um, but I could, you know, when I found a story that's like, all right, I want to do that story, then I could pick it and, and then work it. So uh, I just, I hate the guy that got away with it bottom line 
Mm-hmm. What unsolved case would you most like to see solved? I've got a case that I've been working. Uh, this this guy killed this young mother in Owlshead Park, Brooklyn. That is kind of my white whale because when I first saw the video of him, he was uh, it was such a clear video, and I was like, I'm gonna get this guy in a week. And I I got people saying that they they recognized him for the halal stands. I started running ads in Egyptian, and I was looking for him here and here. And then somebody said he was, might be a rapper, and you know, three thousand dollars later, spending on this this guy trying to find this guy, and he's still out there. And the reason why he is my white whale is that when I started this campaign, I had it on Facebook, I also had it on Instagram and other places too, and Twitter. But I had it on Facebook, and one night I got a somebody made a comment. It was just four lot four words, and it said that was my mom, and it was the son of the woman who was killed. He saw the post and he commented on it. I was like, I'm going to be right then. I was like, I'm going to be looking for this guy the rest of my life. And so you kind of talked about this a little already when you said you didn't want to be a strict crime reporter. Um, And one thing I talk about on the show a lot is the role of crime journalists and crime writers. And Mm -hmm. it definitely comes from a slightly narcissistic place. So I'm a young crime journalist myself. But I also think it's an important conversation, especially given how much true crime media has just exploded in the past couple years. So what do you think the role of a crime writer is and what should it be? Right. Well, there's, there's two things. You know, you've got the crime reporter where you need to be, you need to know the pulse of your community. So if anything is happening out there, you need to be telling your readers. Um, so if there's any sexual assaults, I mean, you're, you're working on campus, but also outside, you know, a lot of people are living off campus too. So things that are happening where your readers are, what it, what is going on, um, attempted sexual assaults, um, bike thefts, um, the, you, know, yeah, you will have the occasional murder, breaking and entering, uh, the stuff that you see a lot of on, on college campuses. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, also su- some stuff that they might be interested in as well, party busts and, and whether cops are getting a little bit too, um, you know, aggressive with people. Uh, you know, you've got to be the, the pulse for your community. Now, if you get, so you're doing that, and that's minute by minute, day by day. Then you're going to get a story while you're doing that. So all, all the crime stories should be coming through you, and you're the filter, and you're putting it out there. It's, you're, you're putting out everything, but then you get one, and you see one, you're just like, what happened here? There, I, got, I got questions on this one. Why did this happen? Was she, did she know him? Is this a love triangle? What's going on there? Then when you start asking yourself those questions, you got to remember, and you got to realize that other people are probably asking those questions too. You start to think this could be a bigger story. This could be more of a feature story. And then you just start working it from there. And... Uh, you know, either so that's on the day-to-day stuff. Now, if you want to go back and you look into historical things or things, the cold cases, then it's just you know um, trying to find stories that would still resonate with your readers if you work for a publication. If you don't, and if you can just uh, you know any story that you write now, if it's you know if you're drawn to it, somebody's going to be interested in it. So um, do your research, try and figure out who would be out there that you can talk to. You don't want to just write a story just based on stuff that you read in, in the morgue, meaning the newspaper archives. Mm-hmm. So from there, um, you know, you start re-reporting the story, reaching out to the, the original reporter who wrote it too is always good. And reporters are always willing to, to talk about that. 
if you can get them out of the bar. <laughs> and uh, they, um, yeah, no, it's just, uh, that's what I think the role of, of the crime journalist, crime reporter slash crime journalist is, yeah. Because I really consider myself, I'm a crime journalist, I'm not really a reporter. Mm-hmm. I was back in the day, but now I'm not doing the day-to-day stuff, you know, I'm just, I'm able to pick and choose. And what do you see as the future of true crime media? I think what I wanted to do with this book is enter and open the door to true crime 2.0. So we've gotten all of this, everybody's been, all the murderinos and all the ID addicts and all the people watching on Oxygen and Dateline, they've, they've been watching this for 10 years, say. They know everything. They know a lot of stuff. Now, how do you put those wits to good use? And I talk about this in the book on how regular people can actually help aid in investigations and how it needs to happen because we're not solving over 5,000 murders every year. And that number and that mountain just continues to grow and grow. So if you've got 220,000 unsolved murders since 1980, who's going to solve them? The police aren't. Uh, they'll solve maybe one or two. It's just like when we catch Joseph James D'Anzo, it's like, okay, we got 13. 13 out of 215,000 at the time. So there's there's cases that are out there. There's things that, that individuals can, can do and become a part of that you're starting to see. And that's what the book, um, you know, using myself as an example, using some of the people that, um, um, like at NamUs, which is... Uh, um, matches up the unidentified remains with the missing persons and the Doe network and starting to see how that can actually work and can help and how regular people can aid in investigations. And it's not a crazy thought. It's the way that investigations used to be run 200 years ago. Uh, They didn't have professional detectives back then. You know, they just had somebody was murdered. They'd call in the doctor or they'd call in the smart guy or the judge or whatever. You know, they wouldn't have a professional detective. And um, besides, our entire legal system is based on a crowdsource. That's what the jury system is. In fact, if you know too much, you're kicked off the jury. I've never been on a jury before because as soon as they hear what I do, not even that I'm a crime journalist, that it's just I'm a journalist. And they're like, nope, you can go home. So, um, you know, we've got these people with all of these, uh, you know, these people out there that have all this great information and they have this mind and they have the willingness to do it. Can, how do we utilize them in order to help solve some of these crimes? And that's, that's where I think it's headed. Right. Well, I cannot thank you enough for joining me on the podcast today. Billy Jensen will be discussing I'll Be Gone in the Dark at the Tucson Festival of Books. On Saturday, March 2nd, he'll be speaking on the Motivation for Murder panel in the Koffler Building, room 218 at 1 p.m., and on the Investigative Journalism panel in the Integrated Learning Center, room 150 at 4 p.m. On Sunday, March 3rd, he'll be at the Tragedies of Murders panel in the UA Bookstore at 11.30 a.m. From the Daily Wildcat and Camp Student Radio, this has been Wildcat Crime. Thank you all for listening. Till next time! Thank you for listening to this mini-sode of Wildcat Crime. If you liked it and want to hear more from us in the future, please make sure to rate, review, and subscribe.
It really does help the show. And tell your friends. Follow us on social media. We're on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Wildcat Crime Pod. Feel free to message us with questions, comments, or episode ideas. You can also reach us by emailing Vanessa O at dailywildcat.com. This episode was written, researched, recorded, and edited by yours truly, Vanessa Ontiveros, recorded in Camp Studios. Our logo was designed by Nick Trujillo. Our music was Ghost Dance by Kevin McLeod. Special thanks to everyone at Camp Student Radio. Special thanks to everyone at the Daily Wildcat. And a very, very special thanks to Billy Jensen for appearing on the podcast today. Once again, thank you for listening. This has been Wildcat Crime. Till next time. (laughs) 